Love it. Great story, and I hope it can be yours, too. Well, hello, everybody. It's been a while since I've seen you, so <laughs> thank you. It's fun to be home. Uh, I've been gone uh, for a couple months, almost three. I, I, was, I went on a vacation, which was fun, and then uh, went out on the road speaking at conferences and running conferences, and then went from that into a sabbatical. And so uh, now I'm, I'm back. So thanks for letting me do that and let me uh, have some rest. Our elders, I'm always so grateful. Our elders uh, implemented uh, this sabbatical thing for our pastors a few years ago. So uh, every seven years or so, we have to go on sabbatical. We don't have a choice about it. And uh, I'm glad that they make us do that because it's hard to like stop and rest and think and, and focus which is the point of a sabbatical. They're like, we want, you to, we want you to separate yourself from ministry to engage yourself with Jesus. And uh, sometimes when you're in ministry vocationally, all that blends together. And they just looked and said, we think it's really, really healthy if sometimes that doesn't blend together for you. And so we want you to go rest and refresh and spend lots of time with God. And so I'm grateful they make us do that. And I'm grateful that you let me do that. And uh, I'm grateful to, to be home. We had a, a great time on sabbatical. It's, it's always a, a process, like um, at least it was for me. Like in, when I was gone, there's a part of that time that's kind of, um, uh, I was telling a friend uh, walking in the service earlier, I was like, I, there's, I needed time in my own head, you know. So sometimes in ministry, especially maybe the last couple of years when things have been a little bit nuts, you just have to do, like you have to respond and, and try to be there for people and things like that. So it was good to stop and be in my own head for a minute. And it's scary in there, you know, uh, it's scary what you, what you find. So I haven't changed that much. In fact, let's just talk about the cat thing for a minute. So yeah, so I, I do not like cats, that, that has not changed. I like killers. And I, because that's what your cat wants to do. When your cat's purring, it's saying murder. So it wants to kill you. And so I, we have a barn, and I needed things dead in the barn. So we got two cats. Uh, one's named Rambo, and one's named Terminator. And uh, they're doing a really, really good job. So one crawled up on my neck. Heidi took a picture, and it went viral. And then uh, Pastor Joe, a, a pastor that used to work here at Grace Church, uh, <laughs> use this sermon. So I have not become a cat lover, but I do love that my cats kill things. Um, but it was interesting. Um, when I was doing that, it, it was, I, I probably had a lot of anxiety to process through, to be honest with you, stuff that you just don't get around to. A lot of, some pain and some uh, hurt and some disappointment. Um, and I think it's important that we all take time and like go there. I also know that Jesus leads us from there. And so that turns into resolution and that turns into passion and that turns into vision, right? And it is a process that every Christ follower needs to go on because we live life, we follow Jesus through life and life, life can be wonderful and amazing and incredible and it can kick you in the teeth. Right, and so uh, kind of dealing with the whole of that is an important thing, and that's what I got to do a little bit while I was gone. I want to, as, a, as we come back and get in the groove and kind of get the ministry year going at, here at Grace, uh, I wanna center us and ground us as individual followers of Jesus and then as a church family. Uh, the world has changed a ton 
And I think that that change is actually very exciting. I think there's some amazing opportunities that God has like opened up for the church of Jesus Christ. And I think that we have to be in the right places like personally as well as corporately to embrace those things a little bit. And, and when you look at your relationship with Jesus, what I have found is that there tends to be like a little bit of a pathway that Jesus takes us down. So I wanna introduce that to you this weekend. And then we're gonna talk about it for a few weeks and, uh, and just kind of walk through it together. So <clears throat> um, we'll just start with it. So uh, uh, Revelation chapter two is a place that I hung out for a while um, on sabbatical. And so Revelation chapter two is this really interesting part of the Bible where Jesus is speaking and he's talking to churches. And he's looking at churches, there's seven different churches, and he's like, guys, as I'm like evaluating you as my church and my people, these are the things I'm excited about, these are the things that I'm concerned about, and Jesus wanted to point some things out to these local churches, and then through scripture, these are things that Jesus would want us to see in ourselves. He'd want us to see these things kind of individually, and then he would want to see these things corporately. And as we think about a, a process of renewal and a process of revival and a process of preparing for opportunity, uh, the beginning of that process, I really believe, has to start with a passion for Christ. It has to start with a passion for Christ and what Christ can do in us and through us. Now, I know that's what a pastor is supposed to say, but I, well, I want us to think about this individually and then collectively. Um, a friend of mine said something, actually to my, my son, Gabriel, and Gabe was telling me about it. He said something very interesting to him that I thought a lot about when I was uh, resting on sabbatical, and this is what he said. He said, there's a, there's a huge difference between an active Christian and a man of God. There's a huge, Christian between an active, a huge difference between an active Christian and a man of God. Now, he's talking to my son, Gabe, so he said, man of God, we'll say person of God or follower of Jesus. There's a huge difference between an active Christian and a follower of Jesus. I can be very, very active in my faith, is kind of the way we would say it. Very active in the church. I can be very active in trying to live out the truths of the Bible. And I can do that without having a deep passion for Christ. It's a really interesting thing. And that activity can mask the shallowness of my love for Christ. That's part of why your elders and my elders who oversee me are like, we want you to get away and clarify that once in a while. Because we can be so busy being a Christian that we forget or lose sight of being a lover of Jesus. And this jumps out in Revelation chapter two. So God is writing this letter to this, this church in the city called Ephesus. And he says this, verse two, chapter two, he says, I, I know all the things that you do. I've seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You've examined the claims of those who say that they are apostles but are not. You've discovered they are liars and you have patiently suffered for me without quitting. And then Jesus says this to that church. He says, but I have this complaint. This is my complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you've fallen. Turn back to me and do the works that you did at first. 
And I, I've been in this passage, you know, a bunch of times, read the Bible a bunch of times, and I gotta, I'll just be honest with you, right? Just kind of be raw with you here a little bit. Every time I read Revelation chapter 2 and I read that letter to the church of Ephesus and I come across this verse, every time the thought that goes through my mind is, wow, Jesus, that's petty. Like, that, that's kind of petty. Uh, look at the list of what he just said. Uh, I, I've seen your hard work. So he looks at this here, he's like, you guys work hard. Like you do you sports camps and Bible camp and momentum, and like you guys work hard. I see your hard work. I, I see your patient endurance. Like you, you go through hard times. You have culture that doesn't agree with you. Your roommate doesn't treat you well. Like I see you endure that with patience. You don't tolerate evil people. Like Grace Church is not a church that sweeps things under the rug. So what that means is sometimes we have to have very difficult conversations, right? You don't tolerate evil people. You've examined the claims of the apostles and, and you've discovered they're liars and you patiently suffer for me without quitting. And every time I read that, I think that's a lot, right? And sometimes when I'm tired and I'm worn out and spent, I read that personally and I'm like, Okay, Lord, you see my hard work because I work. I work like a dog. I work hard. You see my endurance. God, what I have to bear, what I have to put up with. You know, the, the, I always say that this dark circle is my children and this one's you. <laughs> right? There's a, there's a lot. I have to do that. I don't tolerate evil. Like, I will do the hard things. I've examined the claims. My, my fancy name is Dr. Bogue. Like, we, we really work hard to stay on the truth. Patiently suffer, maybe not patiently, but like suffer, and you do it without quitting. I think about quitting, but I haven't quit. So all of that effort and offering, and your complaint is like, I don't love, like, I don't love you like I used to. It, it feels like if I went home, and I looked at Heidi, and I've been like, Here's the paycheck, here's the work, here's the yard, here's the kitchen, here's the kids, here's the barn, here's the animals. And I, I walked into the kitchen, she looked at me and said, boy, you haven't been really romantic today. I'm like, really? Really? Well, why don't you get out there and do something? Yeah. See, it, feel, it feels relationally petty. Now, Jesus isn't petty. So why would he identify that? Why would he look at this church that, on the surface, I think that's a pretty good list of things that people are doing. And why would he look and say, but my, my problem is, you don't love me or each other the way that you used to, right? Why would he do that? Somebody asked Jesus one time, what's the most important thing about following you? He said, it's to love me with your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. That's the greatest commandment. The second one's like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Everything hangs on that. Everything hangs. Everything builds off of my love for Christ and our love for each other. And Jesus is looking at this church. He's saying, guys, you're working, you're giving, you're sacrificing, you're volunteering, you're investing in each other. But the thing that I actually want from you, you're not giving me. You're withholding it from me, or you've lost sight of it, and you're holding it from, with, from each other, right? Now, why would he say that? He would say that because motive is everything. 
Motive is everything. It's not what we do. It's the reasons why we do it. And when we look at relationships, motive is everything, right? There's not a, I've done a gazillion weddings. I've been a pastor for 29 years, so I've done a gazillion weddings, right? I've never had a newlywed couple look at me and say, you know what my dream of a marriage is? That we get the bills paid, we raise the kids, we pay our house off so that we're debt free, and then we live as functional roommates the rest of our lives. <gasps> so romantic. <laughs> Nobody dreams about that. Nobody wants that. That's why you can have an extremely functional marriage that's very unhealthy. Because motive is everything. Why I do the things that I do. What the purpose and the heart behind that gives value to everything that I do. And Jesus is looking at this church and, and looking at me and you and he's saying, guys, you can work hard and you don't have to love me to work hard. Lots of people work hard. You can patiently endure. You don't have to love me and patiently endure. There are lots of people who don't love me who patiently endure. There's lots of people who don't love me who face down evil. There's lots of people. You don't, you don't have to love me to not quit. There's some, some people are, are just grinders. They don't quit. That doesn't mean they love me. And you can be a very active Christian and actually have no passion for the person of Jesus Christ. So when you think about living life and you think about reaching the world, to do that from a place of powerlessness, to do that from a place that's actually devoid of relationship of your Savior, all of that activity can mask the genuine nature of your relationship with God. So Jesus is kind of calling that out. He's not scolding them. He's not like, you're lazy and you're dumb. And you're... He's like, I got it, but careful. Because it's not about this stuff. It's about you loving me and each other the way that you did at first. And so he gives a solution to it. And he says this. He says, so turn back to me and do the works that you did at first. And that's funny. It's, it's an interesting solution because on the surface, when we hear something like that, what we tend to hear is, so because you're missing that, what you ought to do is get your act together, try harder, endure more, be more patient, suffer more. That, that's not remotely where he's at because he's talking about this love for me. What he's saying is, he's saying, when you first came into relationships with me, there were things that you were doing that were properly motivated that stirred your love and your passion for me. Right? And I want you to go back and do those things, not because those things are indispensable, but because when you infuse those things with my love, it creates depth in our relationship with each other. Okay? I'll give you an example. Studying God's word, reading the Bible. I read the Bible through a gazillion times. I have a doctorate in Bible stuff, right? I know the Bible. When I'm worn down and I'm tired and I'm worn out, 
going back and spending time with God in his word, I can go, I can go whip a sermon up for you and I don't even need to pray about it. I don't actually even need to really study to get up here and preach a sermon anymore. It's not that hard to do. 29 years later, you know what you're doing. But to have my heart connected to the heart of Jesus, going back and spending time in God's word, because I want to know and love and cherish my Savior, that work ignites a love and a depth and a passion for Christ. And one of the things I got the privilege of doing, Heidi and I went uh, to a resort with some friends, part of our sabbatical, and I would get up every morning and I would have multiple cups of coffee and, and Heidi would go sit in the sun because she's Brazilian and I would go find shade because I'm not. And I would read my Bible about six to eight hours a day. It's not because I don't know what's in it. It's because I wanted to be with my Savior. Not working or even enduring or even suffering, just with. It's a work I did at first. Heidi and I got away because I wanted to be with my, my wife, my love. Right? Not because we can't go to a pool sometimes we want to and not because I wanted to be with. Motive is everything. When relationships begin, the motivation behind that work changes the depth and the meaning of that relationship. When we first trusted the goodness of who God is, instead of losing sight, when we first celebrated the wonder of who he is, when we first embraced the change, because when you meet somebody, your whole life changes. When we did those things properly motivated, we welcome those things into our life. When we're tired and worn out and fatigued, and even when we just lose sight, those same things become tension points in our life. That's why, what he, that's why your husband used to be really funny, and now he's kind of annoying. That's why her quirks used to be endearing. <laughs> She's so late to everything. It's so cute she's late. Now it's infuriating, right? That, that's what happens is the motive grows cold, right? And Jesus says, I want you to go back and do those works. Now, here's a little secret for you, a little relational secret for you. Ready? You'll write this down. You can get a tattoo if you want to. Here it is. Ready? The work of a relationship never changes, the workload of a relationship never changes. It's just as much work to have a new relationship as it is to have an old one. It's just as much work to figure a person out for the first time as it is to live with them for a long time. It's just as much work to adjust to who they are as it is to put up with who they are. It's just as much work to, to begin to journey with somebody as it is to continue to journey with somebody. The work of a relationship never changes. The only thing that changes is the motive. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's not saying, do more. He's saying, do it differently. And come back to my heart. Be revived. Be renewed.
and remember see, why we began this journey in the first place. Now, this is what happens. When your passion for Jesus is rekindled, what happens is your, your vision from God is renewed. So vision doesn't create a passion for Christ. A passion for Christ creates vision within you. Because as you rekindle and you ignite and you walk closely and you go deeply with Jesus, Jesus' heart will affect and infect your heart. And he will affect and infect your perspective. And you will start to love what he loves and love who he loves. And you will start to be motivated the way he's motivated and be motivated why he's motivated for the reasons that he's motivated. All of that stems from that deep relationship with Christ and him changing and altering you and building you going forward. So as your passion with Jesus is revived and renewed, your vision from Jesus is revived and renewed. And right now as the people of God and collectively as the church of God, having vision from Christ is huge and paramount. We are living in a world that has changed very rapidly, very rapidly. And we're living in a world that has changed so rapidly that the world doesn't even know what to do with the world changes that they've created. No, nobody knows what to do with anything. And that is the world that Jesus has chose for us, his people, to live in at this time. And that change has created enormous and exciting opportunities for the kingdom of God. And Jesus is the one who ordains that. Nothing that's happened in your life or in our world was at all shocking to Jesus. So when you see things change on a big level, it's not that somehow Satan got control and he's pressing in on you. It's that Jesus is causing revival, so he's stirring a soil and breaking a ground so it's more receptive to the truth of who he is. So Jesus is working in a world of change, and in that world of change, he wants us to have the same vision for that that he has in creating it in the first place. And if you wanna understand the vision of Jesus, it's always super easy to understand what Jesus wants from his people and what he wants for the world. Matthew chapter nine is one of a thousand examples of this. Jesus, with his disciples, says, guys, look, the harvest is great, but the workers are few, so pray to the Lord who's in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers into his fields. These two words are super important. Pray that God sends his workers into his fields, the fields that he created, that he has a vision for, that he has a love for, and that he has a passion for. What we often interpret as a collapsing culture, Jesus interprets as a ripening harvest. And it's not that the world has gone crazy, it's that the world is being prepared. And Jesus isn't looking and saying, watch out guys, everybody changes and less people disagreed with you than they used to. And I'm not even sure that's true, I just think we know about it now. What we interpret sometimes as a collapsing culture, I wish things would be the way that they used to be, Jesus interprets as a ripening harvest. People are more open to answers, more open to truth, way more open to relationship. 
because they're less distracted by the things that would have grounded them or distracted them from those primary things in the first place. And God looks at that and he says, that's a field that I've created, that's a field that I've placed you into, and that's what I want you to go into. And the church often would look and say, but I'm not sure they want us there because it, it feels funny. And I would look and say, well, you're misinterpreting it. When someone is looking for hope and they feel harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, they're like a person who is drowning, fighting for air and light in life. And when a person is fighting for air and light in life, they flail. And when you go to rescue them, you're probably going to get hit in the face. It's not that they're all opposed to you. It's that they don't have anything to lock onto. And Jesus would look and say, looky there. That's what a ripe harvest feels like. Because when you rescue, when you're a part of seeking and saving, when you offer the, your life and relationship to them, there's an openness and there's a willingness that hasn't been there before. It's, it's a unique thing in our lifetime. And Jesus would want his people to have that vision. The church of Jesus does not pull back and hunker down or attack or resent the harvest. We love the harvest. We're passionate about the harvest. We pursue the harvest. We engage harvest. We want to understand the harvest. We go into the harvest to help make Jesus make sense. And it is what the church of Jesus is called to. A church that doesn't weep for and work for the harvest isn't a church. It's a group of religious narcissists who haven't discovered or embraced the depth of the gospel in their own lives. Therefore, they feel somehow justified to withhold that hope from other people. A church, a person who is filled with the passion of Christ is going to be filled with the vision of Christ. And the vision of Christ is always directed at the harvest. And we have this incredibly exciting time. These, these unprecedented opportunities. Now, I've never seen them before in my lifetime. Where people are looking for answers and they're looking for hope and they will receive that when real relationships are offered. Right? Now, if you said to me, so Jeff, what's that? What are we going to do as a church? I'm like, I don't know yet. Well, how's that changing? I don't know yet. Well, what am I supposed to I, I don't, I didn't say I had the answers. I said I see the opportunity. But what I know is, as a follower of Christ, the Holy Spirit will lead us into those answers. As a church, the Holy Spirit will lead us into those things. I do look, and I think it is amazing what God has already prepared for us, and we had no idea that he was preparing us to do what he called us to do because we didn't know what was going to happen in between the time we started to prepare and the place that we are right now. God has worked in our church and positioned us in a very powerful and very unique way in which we're going to be able to embrace these opportunities in ways that I never thoroughly understood or imagined, but it's exciting that God was ahead of us in that process. If I resent that, or I long for a day that's never coming again, or I resent the enemy that I'm called to love, not only is it going to cause me to miss the opportunity God has created for me, 
but it's also exposing the position of my heart that's supposed to be defined and directed by him because the passion of Jesus always gives us the vision of Jesus. And when you have passion and deep connection with Christ and you have vision and your heart's stirred by Christ, what you wind up with is clarity. You wind up with clarity about who you are called to be, who we are called to be as the people of God, and what we should be willing and unwilling to invest our lives in. One of my favorite passages in the Bible, 2 Timothy chapter 2, I'm not going to walk you through all of it, but this guy named Paul is writing to like his protege Timothy, and he's kind of giving him like spiritual Jesus life instruction. And one of the things he says to him is this. He says, Timothy, soldiers don't get tied up in the affairs of civilian life, for then they cannot please the officer who enlisted them. And he's saying, Timothy, just like, he's using a metaphor, he's like, just like a soldier is going to be focused. They're going in the battle, they're focused. When they're going in the battle, they're not thinking about mowing the grass. Like, they're, they're going to be dialed in. Timothy, be dialed in. Be dialed into what Christ has called you to. Be dialed into his vision. Be dialed into his heart. And that's what is worthy to give your life to, is Christ and Christ alone and his mission and vision for you, Right? And it brings a clarity to what I'm giving myself to and what is defining and what is directing me. One of the things that um, I had to wrestle with when I was finally able to like get a breath and get inside my own head is uh, it, I had to admit, I'm, I'm a little ashamed to admit it, but I had to admit that a lot of times my, my joy and my mood and my hope we're more affected by the news or wokeism or the culture or critics. Lots and lots of critics. Than affected by the truth of who my Lord and Savior is and defined by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That was a difficult realization to come to. That when I am distracted by civilian affairs, the way Paul says it, I start to put a lot of weight and care into what civilians care about. I care about their opinions. I care about what they say. I care about social media. I care about, care about, care about. And as I pulled away for a minute, I had to come to realization, like, I, that is weighing on me more than I want than I wish that it was. And I had to focus my heart and my mind back to the truth of who Jesus is. The demands of the political cycle of wokeism, the fads of the day, the discontentment of individuals or groups are never to define the focus of the Church of Jesus Christ. And because of that, they will not define our teaching, they will not define our responses, and they will not define our definitions of truth. Period. And when you have a passion for Christ, and he ignites within you a vision, it becomes really simple to figure out what you're focused your life on. And nothing, and no one, 
is to take preeminence over that. Now that's a big deal, and that's a hard deal. I, I, uh, I was telling staff the other day, you know, I'm thinking while I'm mowing the grass, and chasing the cats. Uh, I used to say years ago that people don't come to church to find God, they come to church because they have problems. And if you can bring an answer to someone's problem that involves God, you can take them to the heart of God, who is ultimately their answer. And I told our staff the other day, I said, I've changed that view a little bit. I think there's a great temptation. There's a great temptation. And the great temptation is this. I don't think people come to church because they have problems. I think the temptation is to come to church to be agreed with. I want to go and have God agree with me. I want God to agree that I'm in the right. I want God to affirm my life decisions. I want God to be on my political team. I want God to have the same view of culture as I do. I, I want God to think what I think is right is right and what I think is wrong is wrong. And I go to church to see if God agrees with me, and if God doesn't agree with me, I will break fellowship with the church, and I'll break fellowship with God. Because I found my truth, and if I don't find God affirming my truth, then I'm going to make the assumption that God's truth is not truth. I want to be agreed with, right? Now, ready, you with me? I'm not talking about people out there. I'm talking about us. Our temptation is that I want God to agree with me. And I have viewpoints. And I have verses taken wildly out of context to confirm those viewpoints. I have tattoos of those verses. And I want to be agreed with. And I want to know that God is on my side. Right? Now, Here's the problem with this. Ready? Here's the problem with this. The gospel of Jesus fundamentally disagrees with you. The gospel of Jesus fundamentally disagrees with you. And the more deeply you dive into knowing Jesus, the more deeply the gospel is going to disagree with you. If you want to know Christ and renew a passion for Christ, you're going to find yourself more and more disagreement with Christ because by nature we are sinful. So the more that I know Christ and the deeper I know Christ, the more deeply my very nature must be transformed and renewed. I must be something that I cannot be on my own. That's why the supernatural work of Jesus has to take place in my heart through his Holy Spirit. You cannot follow Jesus and have him agree with you. And if you think he agrees with you all the time, it's one of the clearest symptoms that you're not actually following him. You can be an active Christian and have that play out. You can pick and choose different parts of the Bible that you want to emphasize and then ignore the parts you don't want to emphasize and have that play out. But if you want to passionately know Christ, 
and walk in intimacy with him, that's not going to work. And it's not people out there. It's us. And it's what God wants to do in us. And as we approach the harvest, this is a critical step of humility for us. I said it this way. Sin is often clear. It's easy to point out sin. In fact, there's, uh, Paul writes one part of the Bible, he says, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious, right? It, it is easy peasy to point out sin. Now, here's the deal. It's not the people of God's job to point out sin. You don't agree with the Bible. Duh. You're, you're not living in that kind of, God doesn't like that kind of relationship. Duh, it's right there. I mean, it's written down. It's easy peasy to point out sin. It's easy to point out sin in other people's lives, and it's easy for God to point out sin in your life. That is not the hard work of knowing Jesus. Sin is clear. Ready? You with me? Grace, mercy, and love are messy. It's not figuring out what's wrong with the world. It's figuring out how do I respond to people who are wrong. It's not pointing out that those people disagree with Jesus. It's looking and saying, how do I love someone who's an enemy of God? It's not looking and saying, I hope that God is on my political team. It's looking and saying, how do I love people who disagree with me politically? And one of those people is probably Jesus. Regardless of which side of the aisle you're on, he would never make it into office. And the great challenge of the church that is our generation's challenge is holding unwaverly to the truth of Christ and the gospel while grasping just as firmly the desire to love and give mercy and grace even to our enemies. How do you rectify those two positions? I would look at you and I'd say, I don't always know. I know it's a mess and I know it's the exact same tension you live in in your relationship with Jesus. And the church in the midst of that, we're wrestling it with it personally, but we're also wrestling with it corporately. And if we won't wrestle with it, then we're not representing the heart and the mind of Christ. How do you deal with social justice issues by slapping yourself in one camp or another? It's impossible. How do you deal with sexual ethical issues by just writing off groups of people who disagree with you? How do you deal with theological issues? How do you deal with a fight in your own family? And this temptation to cancel I was talking to our interns the other day, and I said, be careful how judgmental you are of the cancel culture, because the church invented it. We're OG in the cancel culture. What is excommunication? What is you got a divorce, so you're not welcome here anymore? What is uh, you came out of the closet, so we don't let you in our home? What, that's cancel culture. And the temptation to not, it's not wrestling with sin, sin's easy. It, it's the temptation not to wrestle with grace, not to wrestle with mercy, not to wrestle with love, not to wrestle with forgiveness. How do I hold, hold strongly to God's word while holding strongly to a, a relationship 
with a person who despises God's word, I'm like, there you go. That is the joined suffering of Jesus who's trying to hold on to you while being truth and life simultaneously. And living in that tension so that relationship is offered, that's going into his harvest field. There's all kinds of people like that. Culture's not collapsing, it's ripening. The school isn't off the deep end, it's ripening. Your roommate hasn't lost their mind, they're just ripening. Well, Jeff, how do we, how do we, I'm like, I don't, I don't always know. But I know the commitment of the Christ follower is to carry that burden and do that work and to walk into that field. That's the gospel, right? And that's what the church is to give itself to. That's what I'm giving myself to. Don't, you're not getting a sermon from me come November about who to vote for. I serve a different king. Wrestle it through. But we'll talk a lot about who to love and the burden of doing that, the hard work of doing that. And it's not people out there who don't want to hear that message. A lot of times it's, it's the guy in the mirror, right? Because the gospel is always going to do that deconstructive and reconstructive work in my life. When we're tired and worn out and confused and kind of anxious and frustrated and unsettled, what happens when we're in those phases is God is alerting us to something, right? When you've gotten all the promotions at work and you're still not happy, when you got the the spouse and the family you prayed for and you wonder if you want to be there. When your life is pretty good but you're always finding a fault in it, that, that unsettledness, what that is, it's a symptom, it's an alert that something is missing, something deeper and richer in your life. When you, when you look at your life and you wonder if you're investing it in anything meaningful, you're, look, you're missing a vision, something deeper in your life. When you're struggling with faith, and I think I believe, but I'm not sure, I'm missing, I'm looking for clarity in your life. And at the core of all of that is your connection to Christ. I wrote it down this way. You were created for Christ, which means you're only gonna be fulfilled by Christ. And those anxious feelings and that frustration with the government and the culture and my kid and they don't think the way and nobody will work and all of that is Jesus looking at you and saying, hey, come here. Because when you and I, when you and I are close, you don't feel that way. You're kind of obsessed with me. And the church, and the dinner, and the Jeff, and the subwoofer, and the... When you and I are walking, you're not putting those critiques on anything. 
and my wife and my husband and my parents and my when you and I are connected you don't view life that way when you're connected when we're connected you're not looking for a vision for your life you're not finding your identity in your job and your sports team and your starting position and your grades and what's missing is me and there's a need for revival and there's a need for renewal there's incredible opportunities. Unbelievable. What a privilege to be the church of Jesus on the planet right now. Incredible opportunities. And to grab those, we're not going to do it with hard work and patient endurance. And all of that's going to stem, see, from our passionate relationship with our Savior. So I'm going to try to walk you through it here for the next few weeks. And if you don't want to hear it, you should, probably shouldn't come to church because that's what we're talking about. But I think that's going to help us settle into something important because we're going to go after these opportunities big time. God has set us up big time. It's incredible to see what he's already done. And he's given us this privilege and this responsibility and we're not going to be a bunch of religious narcissists, right? We want to be the people of God, doing the work of God, going after the mission of God. Right? All right, would you pray with me? Jesus, love you. Thanks for meeting us in this moment. And uh, God, I just ask right now in, the, in, in stillness, I think, come in the church is one of the only places that we sit still for a minute. So thank you for that. So in stillness, through your Holy Spirit, would you press in? I wonder if you'd allow God's Spirit to help you think through your passion for Christ. I know you're a good person. I know you do lots of Christian things. I know you volunteer. Do you love me? Your motive is everything. And maybe being honest about the motive and the lack of depth in the relationship. So Jesus, would you help those of us who need to wrestle with that? Would you, would you lovingly show us Maybe you've lost vision and it's just a grind and it's just a job and you kind of quietly quit and it's just church and it's just that time of year where we have to do that thing and Jesus, through your Holy Spirit, would you renew or even give us for the first time a vision for the harvest? to see past them looking for answers and have compassion. They're harassed, they're helpless, and you want us to go into that field and love them, a field that you created. Jesus, through your spirit, would you 
generate that love for them in us. And maybe it's distraction. I, I took a bunch of the apps off my phone. I don't need to know what the news is every three minutes. <laughs> I don't need alerts and updates. It makes me tense. It distracts me. So Jesus, bringing our focus to you, but in a, in a revived way, not, not a self-disciplined way, but a way of depth. So would you meet us in these moments and in this place?